Okay, we get into our Bible study for this morning. Now, uh, this is a topical study uh, given the, the season. And uh, today is what many people know of as Palm Sunday or uh, the Lord's Day when he presents himself as Messiah the King. And so we want to focus on that this morning. I entitle this Bible study, Save Now. And I think that title will become um, clear to you as we get into the study. Um, I'm a, the product of parents who went through the Great Depression. Yes, I'm that young. And, <laughs> and people who went through the Great Depression have a mindset about value, about things of value. They don't waste value. And if you're brought up in that environment, you, you grow up not wasting value. Some of us were talking about that uh, over the weekend Uh, that we don't leave the water running for just the heck of it. We don't leave lights on because we can, uh, because that's value kind of going out out the drain, down the drain or out the door. And so it was surprising to me to learn that the IRS, each year, in any given year, they are holding anywhere from a billion to a billion and a half dollars of unclaimed tax refunds. Yeah, uh, like a million people in the country uh, have, not, have not filed taxes to get their refund. And most of these refunds are more than $500. And it, it, if those refunds uh, aren't, aren't claimed in a certain period of time, they lapse. You, you can't get them anymore. And so this is value that's out there. It's value to which they are entitled And they don't take it. And it struck me that in these difficult times, it's hard to imagine that people would not grasp something that could help them. And then it got me thinking. This is exactly the situation with people who are entitled to have something of value that exceeds the value of anything that they could possibly own or want. Salvation, eternal life, it's there to be claimed, and yet they don't. And this is, this is exactly what happened in the events of 2,000 years ago during this very same week. Because it was a time when people were entitled to a great benefit, but they rejected it nevertheless. This week, as I said, starts what we know of as Holy Week because it begins with Jesus Christ presenting himself to his people, the Jewish people, as their king, as their Messiah. But it ended up with him being crucified on the cross of Calvary. And the week starts on this presentation Sunday or selection Sunday where Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. And people are crying out, Hosanna, which which can be translated, save us or save now, save us now. And yet within a matter of days, the crowds of Jerusalem are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And in the sharpest of ironies, this is what blows my mind. In the sharpest of ironies, they became eligible to receive the thing that they first requested, save now, by getting the thing that they secondly requested, which is crucify him. You see how that worked? It's like, save now, save now, and then crucify him. And in that crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the salvation of them and everybody else becomes possible. And yet for the Jewish nation, that salvation went unclaimed. 
and will be unclaimed until the end of the tribulation period as a nation. Obviously, individual Jews have come to faith. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the events of the Holy Week of 2,000 years ago, and particularly the attitudes of those Jewish people that were in Jerusalem at the time Jesus presents himself, because the attitudes that they harbored that had them moving from save now to crucify him are the exact attitudes that we encounter. Maybe we harbored ourselves with people in our time who are presented with this great value that all they have to do is claim it, and they don't. So our text for this morning is Luke chapter 19 between verses 35 and 44. For right now, we're just going to read verses 35 through 40. If you would stand with me, please, for the reading of the word of God. And for those of you who, um, who may, may be new or here for a first time, standing for the reading of the word of God, this is not a mandatory work here okay this is just something that the lord put on my heart because i so respect the word of god this these are the words of truth these are the words of life and it's just another way to honor god i think it's fitting that we stand for the opening of the bible like to read the word if if you have a reason why you don't want to stand or you you don't want to be troubled with any kind of work at all by all means have a seat but we're going to stand and we're going to read the word of god so here's what it says then they brought him to jesus Uh, oh what what they're talking about here of course is jesus at this point as they're approaching the city of jerusalem jesus instructs his disciples to go to a specific house to find a colt that he is going to ride into the city on. So picking up in verse 35, when they brought him the Jesus, they, they brought him the Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out let's pray heavenly father lord i believe with all my heart that those stones indeed would have cried out all of creation is beholden to you lord because by the word of your mouth things exist and continue to exist and lord we pray this morning that our hearts would be opened to what it was you were presenting to those people on that fateful day Lord, that we would not only cry out, save now, but we would indeed grasp that salvation that you brought and have brought and continue to bring. Lord, bless the words of my mouth this morning. Lord, let nothing I say come from me, but only from you. Lord, bless my brothers and sisters this morning with what the Holy Spirit wants to work in their hearts from this text. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Kim, if you could show that picture that I gave you. Yes, I took that picture in February when we were in Israel, and I was standing on the Mount of Olives. And Mount of Olives now, uh, at least the portion that's closest to the city of Jerusalem, is, is the largest Jewish graveyard in the world. And there are some very notable people that are buried in that, in that graveyard. 
And what you see as you, as you look down towards the bottom of the wall there, that's the Kidron Valley. And then you go, you, so you go down the Mount of Olives into the valley, and then you come back up. And we are actually looking at the eastern side of the city, which was the side of the city that Jesus would have rode into. And uh, as we consider Jesus presenting himself now, he's coming into the city, and he, he is going to present himself as Messiah the King. Now, the thing you have to understand is Jesus, throughout the three years of his ministry, did everything he could to hold off people receiving him as Messiah the King. And the reason is that the, the, um, the moment when this would all happen was very specifically appointed in Scripture. You know, it's, it's, it's fitting that we're here this morning because in the... the Bible studies that I gave at this prophecy conference, and especially the one yesterday, where I was, I was teaching on how Israel is the super sign that convinces anyone who is willing to read the scripture that, first of all, God is really God, that Jesus Christ is really his son, and that his word is true because of all of the prophecies concerning Israel from the moment of its inception all the way through to the present time. And you can go right through the scripture, which is what I did with the people yesterday. Take them right through the scripture and show them each place where a prophet said this would happen, then this would happen, then this would happen. And just before the time when Jesus returns, this will happen. Prophecy laid it all out. Well, indeed, prophecy laid out all of the details of the very event that we're reading about this morning, including the appointed time. It wasn't happenstance that Jesus just arrived in, in uh, Jerusalem when he did. The only one that really saw Jesus for wh who he was was John the Baptist when, when Jesus approached and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which we read in John chapter 1, verse 29. But even John, as things went on, came back to Jesus and said, are, are you the one we're actually looking for or should we be looking for another? Because even that John knew who Jesus was, the mindset of the people of Israel of the time, they didn't see Jesus in two advents. They saw Messiah coming to save them from Roman occupation and domination. And so previous to this time, Jesus was continually telling his disciples, it's not my time, it's not my time. And then on this day, he's ready to present himself as Messiah the King, and everything is working towards that. It's, it's not happenstance also that on the day that he's doing this, this would be the day, because Passover is coming, right? This would be the day that the priests would be moving through all of the lambs that people are bringing for their, their Passover sacrifice, their Passover lamb. And they are doing the selection process of the ones that are suitable, the ones that have a, a defect they, they don't allow to be used. You might consider it, since this is Final Four Week, uh, Selection Sunday. <laughs> They're selecting the lambs that can be offered. And here comes the Lamb of God to be selected or not. And um, we read there um, that in this, in this very time, the Jews that were plotting to kill him were, were conflicted. They wanted to put an end to Jesus quickly. Uh, this is now right after Jesus had um, 
right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And people saw that. People saw the risen Lazarus. And they are starting to, to murmur and they're starting to uh, be moved and they're, they're, they're excited. And the Pharisees and the scribes that witnessed that resurrection, they were very concerned about what this meant. In Matthew 26, verses 3 and 5, we read, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, what changed that plan was that Judas came to them and offered to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then, of course, they had the pressure that was coming from the whole episode of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so... As we, as we uh, consider this day that Jesus is coming into the city, we need, to, we need to keep in mind that the exact day that he comes into the city was actually foretold in prophecy 500 years before this. It's really quite chilling when, when, you, when you really put in the rigor to understand how precise prophecy is. And if you would, turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9, because I want to show you this. Now, boy, we could spend weeks on this particular prophecy. I consider Daniel chapter 9, between verses 24 and 27, to kind of be the Rosetta Stone for understanding all that has to do with the tribulation period. It is a very, very important part of Scripture. And in this particular prophecy... The Lord tells us through Gabriel speaking to Daniel when the Lord is going to present himself as Messiah the King. So watch this, picking up in verse 24 of uh, Daniel chapter 9, we read, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, just to stop there real quickly, in this particular context, when he refers to weeks, they are groupings of seven, like we understand weeks, but the groupings of seven in the weeks we understand are seven days. This is seven-year groupings, okay? So 70 weeks would be equivalent to 490 years. Now, we pick it up in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that is, until the moment that Messiah the Prince makes himself manifest, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, adding those two together, he's talking about 69 weeks or 483 years. The streets shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, now he's talking about the second grouping, but it's after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, looking at what we are, what we are reading here, at the time that, that, uh, that this is written, um, the, the year was measured in 360 days. And so what we are seeing here is that there's a starting point for when the clock starts for these 70 weeks. And it says there that 
the starting point is when there is this edict, this, this command to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now that happened, uh, and, and there's a, a gentleman who wrote a book called The Coming Prince. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. And he used this prophecy in Daniel. He used uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, and he used Luke's gospel to compute the exact day that Jesus presents himself to Jerusalem as Messiah the King, exactly what we read in our text. And according to Nehemiah chapter 2, the edict to rebuild Jerusalem, which is the the starting point of this 70-week period, was issued by the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. And he issued this uh, in... 445 B.C., Uh, and it's actually March 14th, 445 B.C. And then Anderson took the 483 years from the point at which the clock starts until Messiah is cut off, 483 years. He multiplies that by the 360-day year, and what he comes up with is 173,880 days. So that's 173,880 days from March the 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes' edict. And he marches it forward to April the 6th, 32 A.D. And this is the precise day as determined in Scripture when Jesus Christ would come and, and would present himself. And the scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were the ones that were the most knowledgeable about the word of God. And it would have been very easy for them, and perhaps they even did know that Jesus Christ or Messiah would be coming around that time. They would have been able to compute it just as Sir Robert Anderson did. And yet we we see in Scripture that as all these things are happening, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the priests... They're not even thinking about that. Watch this. Because not only was the, the time when Jesus would present himself to, to his people, not only was that appointed in Scripture, but the very method by which he comes into the city was appointed in Scripture as well. Because we read in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Jesus is coming in at the exact appointed time. He is coming in in exactly the appointed way. And there are those that see that he's riding on the foal of a donkey, and they say, well, you know, that's because he's the suffering servant, and he's very humble. And of course, Zechariah tells us that he is indeed uh, lowly, But the fact that he's riding a donkey does not scream out humility. Actually, a donkey would be the peacetime ride of a king. A king would be be expected to ride a donkey unless he was going into battle, and then, of course, he would be on a horse. So he's on a kingly ride, but he is humble as he comes into the city. He's coming at the exact time that Scripture says. He's coming in the exact way that uh, he was supposed to come in. And there was an appointed reaction of the crowd. If we go back to our text, in verse 38, we see there that the people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Right out of Psalm 118, part of what is known as the halal. And they're actually saying this out to Jesus. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, 
And in some of the other gospel accounts, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, or save us, save now. And these are right out of scripture. Um, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And in Matthew's rendering of the same scene, Matthew 21, 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, the people are getting a sense. They're seeing the prophetic markers of Messiah. They maybe have a sense that this is the right time. They have a sense that here he comes, just as Scripture said. And they find themselves saying the very things that Scripture said that the people gathered in that moment would be saying. It was one of those total God moments. You know, we have them sometimes in a small measure where things kind of align and we say, wow, that was a God moment. Well, this was a God moment to beat all God moments. And as I said, the, um, even the, the owner of the colt and the donkey um, seemed to know that this was a special time because how many people went straight? Would you be out there in your driveway next to your car, Dodge Colt, and <laughs> some strange men come up and say, hey, we have need of your car. Oh, sure, here's the keys, you know? No, we wouldn't do that. Nowadays, they just stick a gun in your face and take your car. But, but no, but this man seemed to know that this was the time and we have to believe that, again, the religious, the, the people who were knowledgeable about the, the Bible, they would know these things. They would see the Pharisees that are by the side of the street. Verse 39 of our text, the Pharisees called out, out to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, these guys, these are the experts in the scripture. They understood the prophets. They understood all of what scripture said about Messiah. And yet they are crying out, keep these people quiet. This is being too much like a God moment. We can't have that. Why do you think they did that? Well, when you go to the passage in scripture where they get the reports back about what Jesus did to raise Lazarus from the, from the grave, the reaction was something to this effect. The, the, the panic was, the panic was, this man does many signs. And, and in fact, let me take you there. It's in John chapter 11, verse 45. John 11, you got to see this because you would ask yourself, how is the most religiously or biblically knowledgeable people not seeing this? How are they not understanding the timing? How are they not understanding the method? How are they not understanding the reaction of the crowd? Well, here's the answer. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, and this would be Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister, and they had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. They, they saw Jesus raise a man from the dead. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, Everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Doesn't that just bend your mind? Oh my gosh, this guy's done many signs. Now he's capped it off with raising people from the dead. What shall we do? I have an answer to that question. Quit. 
Quit what you're doing. Get on your knees. Your job is done. Okay? The law has been fulfilled in him. So now you can just lay that aside and worship. Nope. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh my gosh, people will get saved. And the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. You see how carnal self-interest will always get in the way of what God is doing. Here, God, I mean, don't you all in this room wish that you had an experience to see? I mean, we have faith because we have the full counsel of God and the Holy Spirit indwells us. But imagine back in that time when neither of those things were true and they saw Jesus and these men saw him raise a dead man alive. And their biggest concern is that many people will believe on him and then they will lose their place and their nation. This is an astounding, um, well, it's an astounding reaction that's all too common. The proposition of the gospel gets in the way of people's place, doesn't it? And we're going to talk about that more in a second here. But back to our text, the one thing that's surprising in this passage is Jesus' reaction to all of this. Because here he is. I mean, he's, he's gone through a couple of years now of doing things and speaking and teaching and people right in front of him, people who followed him around for years, still not getting it. And that had to be very frustrating. Now he's presenting himself and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You might think that Jesus would say, finally, thank you, Father. They're getting it. But look at Jesus' reaction. Going, going back to our text and now picking up in verse 41. Now, as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city, as you did in that one slide, except we have the Dome of the Rock there, which is just a black eye on the city. Saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. Surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is one of those times when Jesus shows his humanity. He sees this thriving city. He sees these people gathering for one of the major feast perhaps the most significant feast that they celebrate all of the activity all of the people children running around moms with kids dads bringing in what they took from the field just life going on and he knows what's going to happen in 40 years from that point they're going to utterly be destroyed it's going to be the judgment upon them for rejecting their king and jesus had this heaviness, even that he has all this celebration around him for the moment, because he remembers, he knows what we read in John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He knew that that would, be, that would be his lot in his life on earth, is that his own people would not know him for who he was. His people were expecting a temporal king, a king who would come and militarily and politically rise 
Israel up to its former glory, throw off the yoke of Rome, and make them once again a shining nation among nations. They were not thinking eternally. And the people that we encounter with Scripture, many times when we get, um, when we get rejected for sharing the gospel, it's because they're not thinking eternally. They're thinking very short term. And so I want to take you to three attitudes, three conditions of the heart that were true of these people as a way to bring this all to a close. Because again, I submit to you that the things we see in these people don't think, oh, those Jewish people, I can't believe they, they didn't get it. They're no different than everybody else in this respect of the way in which they contemplate and consider the proposition of salvation. So let's look at a couple of things, distinct attitudes of the people gathered in that time, seeing Jesus Christ coming into the city as Messiah the King, even saying it with their mouth, and yet missing, missing it. By the, time, uh, by the time Jesus has been arrested, and the crowd, the rabble is gathered around as he's being brought before people and all that, one of the things that people say uh, in this moment is, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it's interesting because that exact phrase comes out of a parable that Jesus taught earlier in chapter 19. We don't have time to go through that parable now, but it's a parable of a nobleman who has all these servants and he gives some wealth to a few of the servants to to make business while he's gone, but he's going off to a far place to gain a kingdom. And in that parable, the nobleman is Jesus. And, and what he's basically communicating is, he is, he is he's got his followers here and they're going to be working for his cause while he goes away for a time to gather a kingdom and then he'll return. But some of the people in his, in, in his locale, some of his other servants, they actually send messengers ahead to him to say, we will not have this man, this nobleman to rule over us. And, and the, the, the underlying meaning of that is that those people who will not have this man to rule over them, they're not looking for some spiritual leader who's going to go away for a time as Jesus promised he would. They want it now. They want the glory now. And so they want nothing to do with this man. And they, the, the, the people of Jerusalem were rejecting Jesus because the things that he was representing, this kingdom of heaven, This was not tangible to them. This was not meaningful to them. This was not something that they wanted. They wanted what they wanted. And what do they want? They want things that that really exalt and lift themselves up. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in 53, 6 said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, the default switch that's set in every human being because of that curse of sin is self-interest. I only have eyes for me. And in that mindset, the notion of surrendering oneself to anything or anyone is a difficult pill to swallow. A true disciple of Jesus Christ understands that we, we receive everything from him. We, we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we have the peace of God. And so we are forevermore a subject of our king. We obey his commands, not to get saved, but because we are saved. 
We do what Romans chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, to put ourselves on the altar daily as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, because it's our reasonable service. Why is it reasonable? It's reasonable because of what we have received through grace and mercy, not through quid pro quo. We didn't have to jump through hoops of fire and do all these works in order to receive this. It was given to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And so the world looks at that, that proposition of I'm going to surrender myself. I'm going to repent for my sins. I'm going to place my life in the hands of the man who has given me life. No, the world says we will not have that man to rule over us. This is what those people said. This is what people in our time say very often when we present the gospel. And my only advice to you is never give up on anyone that you desire to be saved. Don't give up on them. I was in that place. I will not have that man to rule over me. I'm ruling my own life just fine. I don't need help. Religion is for weaklings. Until I realized abundantly how much of a weakling I was. And it was the prayers of my family, the prayers of other saints, the prayers of the pastor of my parents that saved me, that drew me to the Lord. Well, the Lord was drawing me, but he used these instruments of drawing that looked an awful lot like people I knew. Another thing these people said, this is, you find this in Luke chapter 23, verse 18. Now, by this time, Jesus has appeared before the Sanhedrin. Then he appears before Pilate. Then Pilate sends him over to Herod. Then Herod sends him back to Pilate. He's bouncing around like a ping pong ball in a tile bathroom. And he's coming in front of the people on multiple occasions. And finally, Pilate, Pilate all along is saying, this guy hasn't done anything. There's just nothing I can, there's no charge I can hang on him. Of course, we know that any district attorney who wants to can indict a ham sandwich, but they, sorry, it's a lawyer joke, sorry. Um, so he's, he's got an idea. Hey, there's always this gracious moment uh, during the feast where I come before the people and I say, hey, uh, we're willing to release one of your fellow criminals. <laughs> Who would you like us to release? So he says, okay, great. This is my chance. I will get Barabbas, who was a very notorious criminal. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a real bad guy. And Jesus. And he brings the both of them out. He said, who shall I release? And they look at Jesus and they say, away with this man. Release to us Barabbas. That was probably a big shock to Pilate. The people cried out, release Barabbas. Now, there's a number of things about that statement that are very interesting. One of them is that it reveals something about human nature that is without Christ. We are willing to stay in, if we, we, when we are determined to stay in our sinful state, we're all right with communing with murderers, liars, thieves. Because, you know, to take Barabbas rather than Jesus is to, is to receive back to ourselves a standard that we can live with. You know, keep the bar low so that we can feel good about ourselves. And, and when you look around at what people will select for themselves rather than Jesus, the bar is pretty bloody low. People who live in the deception of secular humanism 
have raised up some of the most vile and ridiculous people in the world to hold, their, to, to hold on to as their hope. And, and this isn't a political statement because you can look on either side of the political aisle. These are not, these are not perfect people, not even close. And we love to point out all of the transgressions and all of the um, uh, sins of whoever are the leaders of the party that is on the other side of the aisle. But if we would take a sober moment, we would realize that that's just the state of where we are. And so people are only too happy to receive back somebody who's just as vile as they are, maybe even worse, but they'll live with that rather than to have that man to rule over us. Now, the other thing that's really mind-blowing about this situation with Barabbas, there's Jesus, here's Barabbas. Notice I pointed to myself when I said Barabbas, not Jesus. <laughs> here's Barabbas, there's Jesus, and there's a choice. And they, they, they take Barabbas. Isn't that exactly what was going on in this whole scene of crucifixion? There's he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. We're Barabbas. We were released and he was taken. It's like that whole scapegoat thing. It's like, we're the guilty ones. We're the murderers. We're the liars. We're the, we're the thieves. And we're standing there next to Jesus, getting ready to put somebody on the cross. And as you look at Jesus and you look at us, who deserves that cross? I'll say I do. And yet we're the ones that got released and he was the one that was taken. It's that divine great switcheroo. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. And that was playing out. These people, <laughs> these people were speaking prophecy and they didn't even know it. They were living it out and they didn't even know it. Finally, another thing, the last thing I want to bring to your attention that was said on those days. As, as, as Pilate is starting to realize, if I don't put this guy on a cross, we're going to have a riot. And if we have a riot, the Roman bigwigs are going to pretty much put the final nail in my coffin. Because Pilate had some difficulties with central command, okay? And, and he, was, he was over one of the most troublesome regions in the whole Roman Empire. Uh, the Jewish nation did not, for one second, appreciate the Roman yoke. And so there was always things bubbling up, and we know how that played out in some years later. And so he, he realizes, um, he says, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to put this man on the cross. And what do the people say? They say, may his blood be on us and our children. In other words, we will take whatever guilt, whatever condemnation comes with that, and we are so confident in what we're telling that you can put it on our children too. Well, guess what? That's true today. When we as parents or grandparents say, may his blood be on us. In other words, may that precious blood that he spilled for our account, this precious free tax refund waiting for us to be claimed, we will just pour that down the drain and let that be on us and our children. This is exactly what happens. You know, I, I've mentioned this to you before, but it's so frustrating when I hear people that I'm sharing the gospel with who have children. I say, you know, 
coming to the Lord not only is a blessing to you, but it's going to be a blessing for your kids to grow up in a godly Christian home. And you know what they say? Well, I want my kid to make up his own mind. I don't want to impose values on my kid. I want them to find their own way. I want them to find their own truth. I said, they'll find their own truth. It'll be right, right there in a corner of the pit of hell. You know, if you don't want to impose values on your children, there are plenty of people out there who are happy to do it for you, and they won't be good. This is why all around the country now school boards are blowing up, school board meetings blowing up, parents saying, you're teaching our kids what? If we were in a park and met a strange kid and shared what you have in your libraries with that kid, we could be arrested and jailed. And yet, and yet, this is happening today because parents will not stand on the truth. And you can bet that if you create a home that's loosey-goosey, without direction, without godly direction, without a compass and a map, which is right here in our hands, your kids will be lost and they will be lost big time. And this is what we're seeing now. This is the burden we have for the younger generation. Too many parents have said, may his blood be on us and our children. And their children are suffering beyond belief. And so, to close this, I want to just say, as Paul the Apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, today, now, is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation. It isn't later. You don't have to go and get a theology degree so that you can understand whether you want to be a believer or not. The Lord makes it very simple. I am a sinner. The wages of sin is death. Whatever I could possibly gin up as a righteous act of my own will never give me right standing with God. And yet God so loved me, he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, who came in human flesh, lives as a man just like I do. And he took upon his sinless life, my sins and the sins of the world, paid the ultimate price. God's righteous judgment upon those sins is death, and Jesus paid it. And then God proved that Jesus has overcome sin and death by raising him from the dead. And I put my faith, I confess with my mouth, he is my Lord Jesus. I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead to give all who would believe eternal life. I put my faith and trust in that. If you can pray that today, if you have never prayed that before, you can be saved. And I would be remiss to preach from this section of the gospel and not give an invitation Today is the day of salvation, not later. It's not when you feel like it. Because no matter how you feel, if you are without Christ, you're on the highway to hell. And there are a lot of churches that won't preach that and they won't say that because they're chicken. <laughs> they're chicken, I'm sorry. People are going to hell. Lots of people. We are God's answer to that problem. We cannot sit on our hands and not talk about these difficult things. We have been sent to talk about these difficult things. So if you are here today and you want to know that you are going to live forever 
I'm going to ask you to do something that will be the hardest thing, but yet the easiest thing you've ever done. I'm going to ask you to just come here. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you can take a moment of courage to stand and say, I I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he is who he says he is. If you can do that today, first of all, you are going to make a lot of people here have the best day ever because they were here and they're praying for you right now. But more important than that, you'll live forever. You will you'll have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And you will, you will begin a legacy in your family of a godly home. Jesus' blood will not be on you and your children. His life and salvation will be on you and your children. So I'm going to take a moment and pray. Um, and if you want, to take that invitation to be saved now I'd ask you to just come here before your brothers and sisters and acknowledge the Lord before them so Heavenly Father Lord I pray God that if there is a heart in this room that is not yet yours you would reach out for that heart now you would bring them into your kingdom into the family of God Lord we know that we are sinners and in our own righteousness there's nothing we can do to be saved and yet Lord while we were still sinners you died for us you took our penalty and paid it in full And Lord, we believe that you rose from the grave. After three days, you rose from the grave to prove that you have conquered sin and death. I put my faith in that, Lord. I put my whole life in your hands. I will have this man to rule over me forever and ever. Because he is just, he is righteous, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving. He is everything a king could ever be. And so I put myself under him and pledge to serve him all my days. If anyone is in this room who has never prayed that prayer and has just prayed along with me, I would hope that you'd let me know that today was the day of salvation for you. That we could rejoice with you. We could come alongside you. And we can help you take your first steps as a man or a woman of God. Well, thank you for meeting us here this morning. Thank you, God, for your spirit. Thank you, God, for your word. And I thank you, God, for your church, this church. The love that we have between us, Lord, is truly a precious thing. We love you, Jesus. We give you thanks. We give you praise. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.